Uh, Let's open our Bibles to uh, John chapter 3 this morning. We're in a series that we've entitled The Gospel of John, looking at this gospel as written by one of the closest associates and probably the best friend of Jesus while Jesus was here on earth doing his earthly ministry. And we come to a passage of Scripture that uh, is really, really famous. And the reason why is one of the most famous of all Bible verses. John 3.16 is contained in our text this morning. Uh, But much of what surrounds that famous verse is obscure to us. Uh, Maybe we've never really studied it in its context and, and seen it for the power that it really has based on what was going around Uh, in that time and in that conversation. You see, this morning, we are spectators to a one-on-one, face-to-face conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. Now, I want you to know this is one of the longest one-on-one conversations recorded in all of Scripture. And it teaches us about one important truth, and that is our salvation. It tells us what won't get us saved, It tells us what we need to be saved and what happens in the process of salvation and what we do in light of our salvation. And so this passage has an integral part in our lives as followers of Jesus Christ, and it would do us great good to take some time today to open up God's Word and to allow God to speak to us this morning. You know, one-on-one conversations are important. If you're a parent, no doubt you've been a part of one-on-one conversations with your kids. If you're married, you no doubt have had one-on-one conversations with your spouse. If if you have someone special or important in your life, at some point you had a one-on-one conversation. Those face-to-face encounters help us to understand, answer questions, uh, maybe give us a peek into the life of the individual we're talking to. We love to be spectators of face-to-face, one-on-one conversations. In fact, some of the most watched television has happened with face-to-face, one-on-one interviews. Whether it's celebrities, uh, listening to them talk about their life as a movie actor or uh, their life as a musician, we want to hear what life is like for the rich and famous, and we take notice when they sit down and answer questions. We love to hear about what's going on in our world, even if it's with an enemy. Uh, That is someone who wants to do us harm. And and so we will tune in when we get an opportunity to hear a one-on-one conversation, even if it's from a global terrorist. What about uh, nations and uh, leaders of nations, even those that maybe aren't our own? We want to hear from them. We want to know what they see in the world, how they view us as a country and as a people, and we'll tune in to watch a one-on-one, face-to-face conversation with them. Even sitting presidents have the opportunity to be asked questions, even at times in the worst of times when their integrity or transparency of their office has been hit by scandal. We want to hear more of the story. But sometimes face-to-face, one-on-one conversations can be eerie. When a young lady, a part of the royal family, says, I believe there are some within the royal family that want to see me dead. And only a matter of a couple months go by after that interview, that face-to-face conversation, when the worst of the fears of people everywhere was that she would be killed. Face-to-face One-on-one conversations are incredibly enlightening. 
They open our eyes to see things maybe we didn't know. They help us to understand the person that we're talking with. So it's no wonder that Nicodemus, a man of great stature, longs to have a face-to-face conversation with this upstart teacher who's doing some pretty amazing things. And Nicodemus, no slouch on his own accord, wants to know more about Jesus. And we are told at night he goes and he visits Jesus to have a one-on-one, face-to-face conversation. And it's in this conversation we see three things come out. And I want to work through this passage looking at these three things. And the first is, is that in this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus longs to dispel some common myths that we have about salvation. Let's jump into our text this morning. And it tells us right from the get-go in John chapter 3, there was a man. Well, what do we need to know about this man? First of all, he's named Nicodemus. And this Nicodemus was a man of the Pharisees. It goes on and it says he was a ruler of the Jews. It says that he came to Jesus by night. And here he says some nice things about Jesus. Rabbi, that is teacher, we know that you are a teacher from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. So here we have this one-on-one conversation. And this Nicodemus is a religious man. Now what we're going to see in the Gospel of John is that John is trying to unveil a theme. And his theme is that everyone needs Jesus. Last week we learned that even if you are religious and doing the work in the temple, you still need Jesus. Today we're going to see that if you're spiritual and you have some nice things to say about Jesus, you still need Jesus. And third, next or two weeks from now, we're going to see a woman who is neither religious nor spiritual, if you will, but she's a Samaritan and, and in many ways broken, and broken Gentiles need Jesus as well. What Jesus is going to tell Nicodemus is that some of the myths that we have about salvation are wrong. You see, if you were to look at someone's life and say that is a person who has inherited eternal life, then Nicodemus would have been one of those people. You would have looked at his life and his life would have been impeccable. As a Pharisee, he would have made sure that his life was free from all of the leaven, both physical and spiritual leaven, that would keep him from being able to adhere to all 613 laws that Moses had delivered to the people of Israel. But Pharisees went even farther than that. As the spiritual leaders, if you will, of Israel, they had all manner, some would say thousands upon thousands of laws that built fences around those 613 to make sure you weren't even in the area code of breaking one of those laws. So as one looked at Nicodemus, they saw an individual who lived according to the law, who made sure every aspect of their life was about the law. They made sure all of their spiritual ducks were in a row. You would have thought that Nicodemus, if anybody was saved, Nicodemus would have been one of them. That's myth number one. Listen, you can be incredibly spiritual and have your spiritual life quote-unquote in order and still be lost. You see, some of us have come into this place under a myth. 
We think that by attending church, we think by going through some rituals like taking communion, which we'll do later in this service, by being baptized, by being a part of a good Bible-believing church, we, we think that if we do some Bible study and all of that, if our life is cleaner than the life of our neighbor's, then we're in a good spot. We are saved. We are in relationship with God. But what we're going to learn from Nicodemus is he was far from God, even though his spiritual life, if you will, from a human perspective, was in order. And so myth number one we got to get out of our mind is that we can will ourselves to do certain activities that will get us right with God. And the second thing that we see is that when he comes to Jesus we see that he is incredibly nice to Jesus. In fact, he's cordial. You may want to write that down. He's cordial and he's curious about Jesus. Notice what he says. He comes by night and he says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So two superlatives about Jesus that he shares. One, in essence, you are some sort of prophet from God. That You speak on behalf of God. You speak the truths of God. That's a positive. Second positive is, is that God is with you. That is that God, His presence is with you as you speak. That gives you authority. And what He wants to do is He wants to know a little bit more about Jesus. For some today, you fall under the Nicodemus myth that just because you're cordial about Jesus, just because you're curious about Jesus, makes you a Christian. I live in a community, and maybe it's true of the community you live in, that Jesus is held with some high regard. Not the highest of regards, not in worship and adoration, but, but there's respect. When someone speaks of Jesus, people say nice things about Jesus. He was a good teacher, a wonderful man. He sought to make the world a better place. When I talk with people, especially when I tell them I'm a pastor, people will ask their questions about Jesus. Hey, uh, Tim, can you help me with this? I've always wondered this about Jesus. They're curious about Jesus. But just because you're cordial with Jesus, just because you're curious about Jesus as Nicodemus was, Jesus is going to make it clear. And Nicodemus, with all his cordialness and with all his curiosity, was still far from God, still lost in sin. So maybe today you're here and you you got no beef with Jesus. Jesus isn't a bad guy. Jesus hasn't done anything bad to you and. And you're curious about Jesus, that's why you come and you like to hear about Jesus. You haven't made your mind up about him. But you may think, just as Nicodemus did, that you're good with God. And Jesus is going to tell you today, you are far from God and still lost in your sin. Now, later in the text, we learn about Jesus. I'm sorry, Nicodemus. We learn he's a ruler of the Jews. That is, he's a part of the Sanhedrin, the, if you will, the upper crust of, of uh, leadership religious leadership within the nation of Israel. But then we learn in verse 9 and 10 that he has another position. Jesus answered in verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? You see, to be the teacher of Israel meant you were the premier scholar, theologian of your day. 
When the nation of Israel had spiritual questions, you were the one they were going to. And so Nicodemus, first of all, being a Pharisee, meant he would have had most of the Old Testament memorized. And as a part of the Sanhedrin, he would have been viewed and respected as one of the greatest of the Pharisees around. But now he's been given this job, this this title of teacher of Israel. And that would mean that in many ways people would view him as smarter and more knowledgeable than his peers. And that brings up myth number three. And that is that biblical knowledge alone can save. That some of us think that we've got the Bible pretty, pretty well known. We went to Awana. We know the Bible verses. We know the stories. We could kill in a trivial pursuit of, of Bible questions amongst our peers. We have lots of knowledge. You see, Nicodemus was a spiritual man. Nicodemus was a curious and, and uh, kind man towards Jesus. Nicodemus knew the Bible. He knew the Old Testament probably better than anybody in this place. And yet, what Jesus is going to say is, Nicodemus, you are far from me. So that begs the question this morning, what myths are you buying into that say to you wrongly that you are saved? If you were to sit with Jesus, might Jesus say to you that you're buying into misconceptions and notions about your salvation? You see, because what Jesus is going to tell Nicodemus is He's going to say that God demands, God demands that we have a miraculous change take place. That a miraculous change needs to take place in our lives. I want you to write that down. The second thing that Jesus wants is He wants to you to know that He demands we experience a miraculous change. Now twice, amidst this individual who seemingly has got it all figured out, twice Jesus does what I would like to call it's football season. So what Jesus gives Nicodemus is a stiff arm. And He says, listen, you're far from God. You're lost in your sin. And he uses the stiff arm of the same word. That stiff arm is the word unless. Do you see that in the text? Unless. Verse 3, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he goes on and he says, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born again. When Jesus uses the phrase unless, He is saying there is no other way for you and I to enter or to see the kingdom of heaven unless we turn to Jesus. Unless we give our lives to Jesus. Anything short of Jesus will keep you out of the kingdom of God. It may make you look better. 
It may give you things to do while you're living in a life of sin and ungodliness. It may uh, give you things to do along the journey to make sure that you answer all the right questions in a Trivial Pursuit Bible edition game. But it will not allow you to be a part of the kingdom of God. You see, what God requires of us is that we be born again. To be born again, to be born anew, was a concept that Nicodemus, and for many, we don't understand it. And Jesus says it's very similar to like our physical birth. You and I being born again, it's not so much what we do, but what is being done around us. How many babies? I've seen three babies born in my life and none of them came out and said, do you see what I did? Look at that. Wow, I'm a pretty impressive baby. No, there's a lot of things going on in and around that child that brought about its birth. And so it is with our spiritual birth. We're a part of it. We're a participant in it. But to think that we are part and parcel of the beginning and end of our salvation experience, you are mistaken. There's been a whole lot of things that have been put in motion long before you ever saw it or recognized it that brought you to the place where you were going to be born again. So Jesus says, well, how how does that happen? Jesus says it's like the wind. The wind is blowing where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it has come from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born again. So if we were to go around and talk to those who have come to a place of salvation in Christ Jesus and said, hey, how did it happen? The answer would be varied. Just like the wind is varied. For some, it was a quiet breeze over a period of time. Nothing big, nothing pronounced, but little by little, day in and day out, you felt yourself being moved inch by inch to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Still others, it was a gale force wind that hit you. That's what hit the Apostle Paul when he came to know Christ. He was going one way in rebellion and a gust of wind named the person of Jesus Christ stood before him on his way to go persecute Christians. And Paul landed flat on his face. And for some of you, you came and you heard the wind and you experienced the wind and it knocked you flat down on the ground. Now what's the wind come in form of? Words of biblical wisdom from a friend or even a stranger. The preaching of God's Word by a pastor or speaker. The great lyrics of a Christian or worship song that leads you to a place of understanding what Christ has done for us. It could be a book that was written by a Christian sharing with you what it means. Someone could have handed you a track and said, this is what you need to know about salvation. The wind comes, and we are told the wind isn't just an impersonal thing. It is the Spirit of Almighty God that moves in our life. And so this miraculous change that comes is the Spirit of God. And what God is doing is He's speaking to you and I in our sin. And he's telling us we need to agree with him in two facts. One, we need to agree with him that we are sinners. And two, we need to agree with him that he has the answer to our sin. 
Now you say, where do you see that in the text? If you fast forward down to verse 14, Jesus says, he brings up this historic event in the life of Moses, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So the Spirit of God moved in such a way in the life of the children of Israel in Numbers 21. In Numbers 21, the children of Israel are doing what the children of Israel did well, and that is grumble and complain. So they're grumbling, complaining, and their wilderness experience, and God as a source of judgment brings about snakes, some of you are freaking out already, snakes into their presence, and those snakes were venomous and they began to bite people. And as they bit the Israelites, these Israelites began to die. Word comes out that these snakes are venomous and people are being bitten and they're dying and they go to Moses and they turn to God and they say, you got to come up with an answer. You've got to come up with something. If we allow this to continue to take place, we'll all be destroyed. We need something that will address the problem at hand. God in His grace then goes to Moses and says, okay, here's the answer, Moses. I want you to fashion a serpent out of bronze, and I want you to place that bronze serpent on your staff, and I want you to lift that staff up so all the people can see it as you gather together. And those who have been bitten by the serpents, the snakes, if they will look to the bronze one that is on your staff, by faith, if they'll believe that and trust that I am the answer, then they'll be healed. They'll be saved from what is killing them. Jesus says the way we enter into the kingdom of heaven is we agree with God that we are sinners in need of saving, that our sin has violated God's righteous decrees, that has kept us from all the good that God would love for us to have. And we agree with Him that we have a sin problem. And second, that God's answer is our only hope. Well, what is God's answer? Well, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, so must Jesus be lifted up. When was He lifted up? On the cross of Calvary. That whoever believes in Jesus may have eternal life. Abundant life. Victorious life. Everlasting life. Then that famous verse comes about. Why did He do it? Why did God help us out? Because He loved the world. That He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So here's this Nicodemus. Religious, spiritual, got it all figured out from a knowledge standpoint. And the two things that he hasn't agreed with God on is that he's a sinner, that he needs Jesus. 
And how ironic is it that 2,000 years spans the distance of time and a half a globe spans the distance and mileage from us, and yet we, like Nicodemus, find ourselves in the same place. Will we agree with God, the Spirit of God, that is speaking to us saying, you are a sinner, and without Jesus you are helpless and hopeless, and that Jesus has come because God has loved us so much Jesus has come that we might have eternal life in Him. Which begs the question this morning, are you born again? Is there a moment, is there a place that you can look back and say, I agreed with the Spirit of God about my sin, and I've agreed with the Spirit of God at some place in my life that Jesus is the only answer to remedy my problem and my punishment for sin. And if you have not done that, then Jesus says to you, you will not see and you will not experience, and you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That is, you will not experience all that God intended for you to experience, not only in this life, but in the life to come. This is the most important question you could ask of yourself. Do not let yourself go another day without answering that question, am I born again? And if you're not born again, it doesn't take church membership or, or habitual involvement in church activities. What it takes is a humble and contrite heart to say, I am a sinner, and Jesus, you are my only Savior. And if you can say that by faith and you can believe that in your heart, then Jesus tells you that He will dwell with you all the days of your life. and He'll be with you. He will lead you and guide you like a good shepherd. He will be the light that you need in a world of darkness. He will be the hope that you need because without Him, you and I are hopeless. What does being born again look like maybe you said tim i think i'm born again but i don't know there's there's so many myths out there and some of them sound so good and and i think i've done that but but i'm not sure notice that a person who is born again jesus says delights in being made holy he delights in being made holy Notice what the end of the passage says. Whoever believes in him, verse 18, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You want assurance of your salvation? Ask this question. Do I like the Spirit of God's illumination in my life? You see, as Christ followers, we're not perfect. We're not better than anyone else. But what we've come to realize is that the Spirit of God 
convicts us of sin and exposes us to the truth of God and His Word, and we long for that in our life. We want that ongoing examination in our life. We long for His light to shine even in the dark places of our personal and private dealings. We want God to speak His truth into our life. And so when He convicts us of sin, the, the born-again individual delights in that and says there's opportunity for forgiveness and, and cleansing. There's an opportunity for restored fellowship. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we're sinless. It means we know where to go when we sin. We know where forgiveness is found when we fail. And it longs for truth. And so this morning, if you have agreed with the Spirit of God that you are a sinner, and you've agreed with the Spirit of God that Jesus is your only Savior, then a born-again experience is that ongoing process. That each and every day we know our sin and we know our Savior and we get to know those two things more deeply. And when it comes to the former, we stay away from it. Because we know what sin and even the temptation of sin can do. And when it comes to the latter being Jesus, we want to dive in deeply into our relationship with Him. So two questions this morning. Are you born again? And two, if you are born again, what are you doing? What did you do this last week? What are you wanting to experience in the week to come? that shows you that you are in agreement with the Spirit of Almighty God that is moving around us as the wind showing us our sin and showing us the greatness of our Savior.